Thank you, worship team. Terrific. Let's open the Word of God, please, to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. About 20 or 30 years ago, there was a, a television show that was called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Anybody remember that? Um, there's a guy with a British accent. I guess he was a British uh, expatriate, Robin Leach, who would spend each episode talking about the amazing wealth and the stellar achievements of uh, great humanitarians like uh, Ed McMahon, Pat Sajak, and, of course, the amazing Kreskin. People like that. I mean, the A-list celebrities didn't quite make it. I mean, Frank Sinatra was too busy, but Ed McMahon could make it. But uh, kind of the premise of that show was that the ultimate goal for all of us, not just for celebrities, should be uh, to get as much money and stuff as possible because we all know that he who dies with the most toys wins. This great American uh, competition we're all involved in. Well, I can say this. Nobody in history... Nobody who uh, was featured on an episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous enjoyed anything like the wealth and the fame of King Solomon, the leader of Old Testament Israel. But in telling his story, we'll see today, the Word of God reveals a truth that blows that premise. He who dies with the most toys wins, blows it out of the water because we're going to learn this truth, having it all isn't enough because having it all isn't all there is. And as Christians, we know that, but sometimes we forget to operate under that premise. So we'll think about that this morning. But let's pray for uh, our troops, our peace officers, our firefighters, as is our custom, and also for our teachability to God's Word. And there are some folks, some of these guys are out of the Army now, and we're thankful for that. I know John and Katie are at uh, an interesting point in their uh, military career, and we think of our peace officers. Uh, those were three peace officers uh, that were murdered uh, back in July, and then there's a scene from Ground Zero that we can't forget. So, uh, Eric, let's pray for those folks like that, and also that we'll be teachable to God's Word this morning as we look at First Kings, okay? Thanks, Eric. Yeah, you know, um, James and Shauna had a very well-deserved break from... Uh, the rigors of ministry last week. They went on a on a cruise. And if you've never gone on a cruise, I highly recommend them. I don't have the experience Homer and Pam have, but I've been on two, and they were both wonderful. But the thing uh, about James, when he goes, when he does anything, he always has lots of questions. And uh, he just had lots and lots of questions. Now, he sent me a picture of him on the beach there somewhere. And, uh, you know, he just had lots of questions. And so Sean and I sat down and talked about this week. And you know, he had hundreds and hundreds of questions, but I'm not going to waste your valuable time going over all those questions. But uh, in order to uh, further our effort here to uh, infotain you as we feed on the Word of God and also to warm up your capacity for abstract thought, here are top five things James asked Shauna during their cruise last week. I wonder if this huge ship generates its own power or does it use a long reinforced waterproof extension cord? they got to have the power, you know. Hey, Shauna, why do you sign up for the only excursion that involves me having to wrestle an alligator? 
And I'm glad I got a movie of that. I got a video of that. And he won. James won. Okay. Number three. Uh, do you see that beautiful staircase near our cabin? And they do have some beautiful things on those cruise ships. I wonder if it goes up or down. See, he thinks about stuff like that. He's a deep thinker. He wonders. Two more questions. We're going to look at the top five. I didn't say these were funny, mildly amusing might be a better way to describe them. Number two. What does the crew do with all those ice sculptures after they melt? We have all our softball trophies up in the attic, but they don't melt. You know, so, uh, it's late. I'm hungry. Would you please find out when the midnight buffet opens? Okay. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Kings 9.10 through the end of the next chapter in the next 47 minutes or so, maybe less. And we're going to see having it all, and I got having it all in quotes isn't enough. Why, Blanche? Because having it all isn't all there is, and it's not all we're designed for either. Uh, the passage breaks down like this. Uh, we're going to see Solomon's accomplishments. Um, wait, let me back up. We're actually, this is not our passage. This is the rest of our unit that we're going to be looking at in First Kings. Uh, you know, we're looking at First Kings one through twelve as we uh, consider the life of King Solomon. And today we're going to look in that long passage at his accomplishments. But then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at his apostasy and then finally the aftermath of uh, his reign. It's not pretty. But that's, what, that's our context. But today let's do this. Let's look at the spectacular but sad successes of Solomon. And that passage we're going to look at right now breaks down like this. We're going to see his worldly achievements, his widespread fame, and his wondrous wealth. Okay, So, uh, Bailey, let's look at that first part there, his worldly achievements. Look at chapter 9, verse 10. I'm going to see several things. Number one, uh, Solomon had a lot of influence and clout with other major regional leaders, and that was unusual for kings of Israel. Uh, we see references to uh, King uh, Hiram of Tyre in verses 9 through 14. This is the guy that supplied the timbers for the uh, temple. We saw him mentioned prominently back in chapter 5. Solomon also, look at verse 15, created great public works for the nation. Look at verse 15. Now this is the account of the forced labor which King Solomon levied on his uh, to build his house of the Lord. He built his own house. The Milo, the wall around Jerusalem, he extended it north and made the city twice as large as it had been previously. He also built up Hatzor, that's the way they pronounce it, Megiddo, and Gezer. Uh, drop down to verse 19. Uh, all the storage cities which Solomon had built, even the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen, and he built all that pleased Solomon. He's building to please himself because he enjoys building things. And a lot of men like to do that. That's why they have workshops in the back. Uh, I'm dangerous with power tools, so I just watch my wife build things, and that's the, that satisfies me. Uh, everything that pleased Solomon to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land under his rule. He's just doing a lot of cool stuff and building stuff. Uh, notice it says, uh, interesting, verse 24, As soon as Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David, I remember, go back to... Uh, I think I jotted that down somewhere. Let's go back to chapter 2 or 3, where we see at the beginning of his reign. Yeah, look at 1 Kings 3, verse 1. 
The first sign that we might have some compromise here, even though this was common for monarchs in the ancient Near East, chapter 3, verse 1, after he kind of consolidates his kingdom, it says, Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, Egypt's been bad news for the Israels ever since their 400 years of slavery there, and it's not been uh, a real good choice for, a, for an ally, because they tend to stab you in the back back then. But anyway, he decides it's a good idea for him, Solomon, to marry the Pharaoh's daughter, and that was a common thing that uh, different kings would do because that way there was less chance that the Pharaoh would invade your country and destroy everybody in your capital if his daughter lived there. Uh, so he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David. The city of David was the hillside just under the Temple Mount hillside in Jerusalem until he had finished building his own house, Solomon's palace, and the house of the Lord Temple and the wall extended around Jerusalem. So go back to chapter Chapter 9, uh, verse 24, we're kind of given an update about that. As soon as Solomon's, as soon as Solomon's wife, Pharaoh's daughter, came up from the city of David to her house, so he's built her a separate palace, uh, to give her the, uh, you know, notoriety and the pleasures that she wants, the comfort she wants, which Solomon built for her. Then he built the Milo. Uh, the Milo, according to Dr. Ryrie, Eric, what does, what does uh, Dr. Ryrie say about the Milo there? Footnote, see it? Yeah, verse 24. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that apparently Solomon built a fortress connected to the wall of Jerusalem, and later when a second temple would be built, the temple that's called Herod's Temple, the Romans built a fortress on the northwest corner of the uh, the Temple Mount then. So it's interesting, you always needed a, a uh, some kind of a law and order detachment directly connected to the temple. Because even when you're doing things God's way, some people will, uh, uh, let's say, react wrongly to preachers. And it's important to remember that, because preachers can incite a lot of different things, including things you don't want to see. Now look at verse 25. We're talking about his influence with regional leaders, his great construction projects, and we get one little verse in here, Bailey, about him being kind of the visible worship leader of the nation. Now, we all know the high priest was, according to the Old Testament law, the guy that offered up the ultimate sacrifices, Day of Atonement, and the other priest actually offered up sacrifices on the bronze altar, brazen altar. But Solomon is the king of this, Anthony, this is a theocratic nation. God established not just the religion, but the whole government to be centered on him. That's why you've got a central sanctuary in the middle of the capital. But we get one little verse, not a lot of detail, and it just says this about his religious function as the visible uh, leader of the nation, the father of the nation who's involved in the worship of God. Now, three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar there in the temple complex, which he built to the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar, uh, which was before the Lord, so he, fin- he had finished the house and he was involved in it. Now, it was impossible for him not to be very much aware of the ongoing worship of the temple because his house also abutted the temple uh, complex, so he couldn't miss it. Uh, That's one factor. It's interesting, the parallel passage in Chronicles tells us that he didn't just uh, lead worship three times a year, but he also uh, was involved in temple worship every Sabbath. So it wasn't like this was the only thing he ever did. He was not just showing up for church three times a year. But I get the feeling that he's going through the motions because he has to, and it's part of his job description, but he's not doing it with the whole heart. Uh, I think 
his focus on other things, his work projects, was what he really was worshiping during this phase, and it leads to what we're going to see next week. Now, it's interesting, reading the commentaries, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about this, because you've got to explain uh, next week, chapter 11, how he can get so far off the track. So one very respected commentary series says that when it says, now three times a year, it would have been Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, the three required feasts. Now, three times a year, Solomon burnt, uh, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar. One conspiracy theory showing that Solomon's way out of bounds already that a commentator suggested was he's not even letting the priests do that. But he's walking up there and says, I'm the king, big boy, out of here. I know only priests are supposed to do this, but I'm special. I've got the, the rules don't apply to me. Not that any major politicians would think like that. The rules don't apply to me. The laws don't apply to me. I can do anything I want to, and it doesn't matter. And that's one view uh, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think when it says he offered up uh, offerings on the uh, on the altar, he's presenting them to the proper priest, and the priest is doing it. It could be wrong. We could find out in heaven. But I think the problem isn't that he's not worshiping. He's not worshiping with his whole heart. You know, the word worship means to ascribe worth. And we worship when we sing songs. And I agree with James. You know, this isn't just something you check off your box. It should energize us to live for the Lord in the world. But should just kind of, I think, should just center us on who he is and some of the specific aspects and functions of a particular song. So uh, the music's important, and James does a wonderful job with the other guys leading worship with good music. I love it, and I'm not a music critic, but uh, I think it's fantastic. Couldn't be better. But it's really about what is the content of the song. You know, there was a very famous uh, Christian uh, conference ministry that 40 years ago told us that music with a beat was inherently evil, and you could prove it from some numbers in Ezekiel. You add up the numbers, and you come up with a square root, and you stand on your head, and you don't sleep for three days. And there, it says right there, music with a beat is inherently wrong. And I always thought, that is so weird. I mean, the beats, the notes are neutral, man. They they don't have any uh, power for good or evil. It's what is the content of the song. That's like saying that all DVD, the DVDs are evil, because you can get porno movies on DVDs, right? So all DVDs, the media, is evil, right? Baseball bats are evil, because you can take a baseball bat, hit a lady over the head, and steal her purse. So baseball bats, see the baseball bat? Bad bat, bad bat, right? It's not the bat's fault, it's not the CD's fault, it's not the note's fault. Uh, what is the content of the movie on the DVD, okay? Uh, what are you going to do with the baseball bat? You can do what the Indians have been doing, hit the ball. Or you can do what the Cubs have been doing. I mean, miss the ball. I mean, you know, you can do different things with baseball bats. And same thing with notes. So for me, uh, you know, uh, we've actually changed the words to certain worship songs to make sure they're not heretical. I mean, that's how crazy this is. You know, so I think the content's very important. So I think Solomon is one of those guys that goes to church every Sunday but he's really worshiping his construction projects a lot more, and he sees God kind of as his spiritual success consultant to make sure all of the projects come in under budget and on time. And God's got a bigger job than that, and you're just not important enough to use him as your assistant, and that's a danger that some Christians have. Now, really fascinating to me is what we're told about under his achievements in verses 26 and 27. We're going to have... The first navy in the history of Israel. Uh, he's got so much money and so much time, and he's so interested in planning stuff and building stuff and making stuff work 
that he actually starts a navy for Israel. And they're all landlubbers, you know. Uh, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships in Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Now today, it's interesting if you go to, uh, to the Middle East, you know, you've got, wrong way. Yeah. Okay. There's Egypt, right? That's where Solomon got one of his first wives. You know, I think she was number two actually. But there's Israel right there. Just a little old Israel. And although they do have a coastline on the Mediterranean, they didn't really have any major ports during Solomon's reign. Now, Homer and Pam have been to Caesarea, which was a major port in Jesus' day, fast forward 900 years from Solomon, that King Herod actually built. He loved his construction projects too. But it's interesting, the port we're talking about here, Ebion Gezer is right down there. It's on the tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is part of the Red Sea. And the very first time I taught in Jordan, when I left, I got on a plane and there was just a, and it was a large, it's one of those planes that hold 300 people. There were like three passengers and a crew. And I didn't understand that. Uh, but we flew not to Paris and then back home. We flew south to, um, to Elat, which is the Israeli side of the beach resort down there. The Jordanian side is called Aqaba. But we flew down to Elat and we filled up that plane with French tourists because we were going to Paris and then I was going to go to Cincinnati and then come to Oklahoma City. And this was this was in 2003 and you could still smoke on airplanes in 2003. So so we had an amazing flight, just the three passengers and this full crew and it was broad daylight and we could see just this beautiful, we circled around there and, and landed and it was incredible. Then we wait there for an hour and you get you know, I believe in loving everybody, and I care for everyone, and i got a big heart, and I'm a compassionate conservative, but I do hate the French. Other than that, I love everyone. So um, I've got reasons. But, uh, yeah, we got 300 smoking freshmen. I mean, men, women, little boys, little girls, they're all smoking on this airplane. And then we flew over Cyprus, and that was beautiful. Went to Paris, and, and they got off, and so on and so forth. But, yeah, it's interesting that he's got enough time, and he's got enough money and he's all about building stuff because he's all about his projects. And I think to an obsessive, uh, bad amount, i got to turn my clock back on or we're all going to be in trouble. You know that. Uh, and watch this. So he builds a fleet of ships. Then he realizes we got nobody in the nation who knows even how to sail, you know, beyond just on the lake, Sea of Galilee. So look, he gets Hiram, his buddy, to bail him out, the Phoenician from Tyre. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors, who actually knew how to operate ships, <laughs> along with the servants of Solomon, who I supposedly got trained in, in the art of uh, military industrial complex as far as uh, doing uh, uh, the Navy. Okay, So worldly achievements. Now let's think about Solomon's worldwide or widespread fame. Look at chapter 10. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, Ryrie Study Bible version. Now, when the Queen of Sheba, now where's that? Well, there's Israel, circle, right? Sheba is down where, uh, in the southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula, a part of what we would call Yemen today. What do you know about Yemen today? Not a good place. Very, very dangerous place. But that's where she's from. 
It's over a thousand miles away, and you're going through desert most of the way to get to Israel. So you got to really want to get there. Uh, now, when the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of Yemen, we'd say today, heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. She couldn't quite believe this guy had all this wisdom she's hearing about. So she came to Jerusalem with a large retinue. And that's a word that I didn't even know how to pronounce until I found out this week, so I'm very proud of myself. But retinue is better known as an entourage. Does that help? It's just a group of peeps. It's just It's just important people have people around them, you know? And like James and I, you know, when we've got to try to get together and have a meeting, you know, his people have to call my people and we work it out. You know, important people like James and I have a group of peeps. We've got a retinue uh, with us. Uh, and they've got camels. They're coming from Arabia. They're going through most of this desert. Makes sense. Carrying spices, very much gold, precious stones. This is all just as a gift, a preliminary gift just to get her an audience, you know. Uh, sometimes you have to pay people in, in places and, and give money to, to them so you can have audience, so you can meet with high government officials. This sometimes happens, you know. I know it's hard to believe, but it's, it can happen. So it's, they put her in the front of the line, man. Uh, and she came to Solomon. She spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So I don't think these are trick questions. She's wondering maybe about if God, why evil? We all wonder about that. How's this going to end? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Probably things like that. I don't think she's asking him, can you compute the square root of pi without a calculator? I don't think he's, she's asking him those kind of questions, but she's a VIP. She's The Queen of Sheba at this period was kind of like Queen uh, Princess Diana, remember, at the height of her popularity. Throughout the region, she was well known. She's heard about Solomon. He's even more famous than she is, and she wants to make sure he's legit. And, and if he is, she wants to ask him some questions. So when the Queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon as he responded to her questions, uh, the house he had built, which was lifestyle of the rich and famous on steroids. The food of his table, just the best stuff. I mean, like chicken fried steak you would not believe. Melt in your mouth. Um, the setting of his servants. This guy gets everything lined up perfect. Just the opposite of TBF. And, uh, Blanche, thank you for the kind words about TBF. But I think maybe the Lord wanted you here was not to hear me talk, but maybe so we could hear you sing. And I mean that. Right? Although I am going to sing something later, just so just don't leave. You want to hear that? No, not really. If I promise I don't sing, you got to stay. Uh, the attendance of his waiters, their attire, his cupbearers, uh, his stairway, which went both up and down, by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. He, he, she had nothing left to say. I mean, she had nothing left to question. Had no more doubts. And look what she says here. Then she said to the king, and this took several days or a couple of weeks probably. It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. That sounds like somebody in the New Testament to me, Steve. <laughs> you know, the night of the resurrection, all the apostles are behind the closed doors. They think they're going to get arrested next. Everybody but Thomas, that is. Jesus appears, freaks them out. He really is risen from the dead. Jesus goes away. Thomas shows up late. It's not good to be late for church, folks. I'm telling you, just so you'll know. Uh, you can miss something. Thomas shows up. Okay, we've seen the Lord. He was here. What the lady said was right. And he said, I don't believe it. I can't believe you guys. Are you kidding me? Now, hey, Anthony, if you're writing the gospel, John, maybe 60 years after the fact, why would you put that in there? You wouldn't make that up unless it actually happens. It's not going to help you in your uh, where you're 
in your setting there in history as you write the book about what did happen. And then, uh, you know, unless I see him, I'm not going to believe the old Doubting Thomas thing. Same kind of thing. I heard this report uh, and couldn't hardly believe it. Nevertheless, I didn't didn't understand. I didn't believe it at all. Uh, at least it couldn't be as good as if I was talking about it. until I came and I've seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You're twice as good as everybody's been saying, and what they've been saying is amazing. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. And then and then she looks around at all these people who work with and for Solomon, and she says. You better not take this for granted. This guy is one of a kind. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these servants who stand before you. Man, you guys don't appreciate what you got here. Uh, you continually hear this wisdom. It's incredible. Uh, blessed be the Lord your God. This is what Israel's job is. You know, let the light shine and let the Gentiles come to you so they can notice how great Yahweh is. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king, because you're one of a kind, you're incredible, to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold. Now, according to the Rarby Study Bible, Eric, is that in your Rarby Study Bible? Four and a half tons. You know, the price of gold, if I read my uh, thing right last night, is $1,277 an ounce. And if I fast forward here, go go to verse 14 of uh, this chapter. As we, uh, in a minute, we're going to move from his fame to his wealth. It says, now the weight of gold which came into Solomon annually was 666 talents of gold. Uh Uh-oh, we got a problem. Julie, we got a problem. 666. Remember how baseball bats are evil? I told you they're evil, right? Baseball bats are evil, right? Did I say that? No, I didn't say they're evil. I said they're neutral. So are numbers. Even 666 only means what it means in its context, okay? 666 as an inscription to the Antichrist is a way to identify the Antichrist, or more likely not to predict who's going to be, but for people living in the end times to look and do the calculation and figure out that's the that's the person. But there's nothing inherently evil with the, the number 666, but if uh, that's 25 tons or 800,000 ounces of gold at the going rate, he's taking in over $1 billion a year, and that's for him personally, okay? And that's a lot. That's a 1,000 million, especially at that economy level. But anyway, go back to she gives him um, about 4.5 tons of gold. That's a lot. Uh, and this, these are just gifts of... Uh, Respect and, and, and homage to this guy as a amazingly wise ruler. Uh, and also a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Now watch, the, the chronicler who's writing all this under inspiration later, uh, was impressed by the gold and everything, but what really got him was the pepper and the salt she brought because he says, never again did such abundance of, not gold, but of spices came in. I mean, we you can't believe how much salt we had, how much pepper we had. It's incredible. Cinnamon, everything you need. You know, ginger. If you're going to go cruising, you need ginger, right? A little bit. That helps you get ready for that. Um, as that which the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Okay. Achievements. Fame. Let's look at his wealth. Look at verse, verse 14. I already gave it away. But now the weight of gold which came into Solomon. This isn't the total government uh, uh, budget. This is what he's taking. 
in one year was 666 talents of gold, according to Ryrie, that's 800,000 ounces. Multiply it by um, the price of gold, which is, uh, as I said, $1,277 an ounce, and you end up with over a billion dollars. Uh, but look, a statement here that really blows my mind. Look at verse 21. Uh, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon, his kind of Camp David, were pure gold. None was of silver, because silver really, uh, comparably speaking, wasn't all that valuable in the day of, days of Solomon, because they had so much gold. Uh, for the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish, uh, which is out near Gibraltar, uh, with the ships of Hiram, and once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, and watch this, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Now, what does that tell you? Here's a lot of guy trying to fill his life with stuff, fascinating stuff. It's like going, when I was a little kid, we'd go to Pier 1. You know, we lived uh, 90 miles outside of Houston. On a big trip to Houston, we got go to Pier 1. Remember Pier 1 store? had all these exotic things, all these knickknacks you didn't need, you know, but we just loved it. You'd find all this Eastern stuff. Then you find a bust of Abraham Lincoln, the late great Abraham Lincoln, somebody once said. Uh, but he's bringing not just stuff for the economy, not just stuff to decorate his house, but apes and peacocks. Now, that sounds a little bit weird, but go back to chapter 4. We notice that this guy just has an inquisitive mind, Anthony, not just about uh, coming up with uh, answers for people's conundrums, like the women that both claim the baby, He's just interested in everything. He's interested in science. He just had a, couldn't turn his mind off kind of thing. Uh, look at chapter 4, verse 33. Solomon spoke of trees. He was uh, one of the first observational biologists or botanists, I guess you'd say, uh, from cedar that's in uh, Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish and apes and peacocks. So this was a well-rounded guy, but he's, I think, trying to fill the God-shaped vacuum with all this stuff and all this information. If you, uh, you know, see God in all of that, it can be very, uh, devotionally helpful. If you see it as an end in itself, it's not going to be very good. Uh, now notice, our Lord Jesus speaks about the Queen of Sheba. He calls her the Queen of the South in context. But after the religious leaders of Judaism, after observing Jesus for almost two years, and they say, we will not believe in you, we will not have you as our Messiah, we reject you, and we think you do your miracles, you certainly do miracles. Hey, Katie, the, the, the people in Jerusalem, the big religious leaders who hated Jesus, they didn't deny he did miracles, they just denied he did them from God's power, and they claimed he did them by satanic power. That's the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is deliberately, categorically rejecting Jesus and seeing him not as a false prophet, but as a satanically possessed prophet. And Jesus says to them in response to their rejection, you know, the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba in this passage we're studying just now, came from the ends of the earth a thousand miles away to hear the wisdom of Solomon. You guys have me right with you, and behold, someone greater than Solomon is here, and you don't even listen to me. And what you do is listen and distort it. He's just saying, ironically, uh, you're doing that kind of thing. Now, why is that important? It's important because ultimately the story of Solomon, even though it's interesting and profitable on its own, is all about part of the Old Testament dynamics that bring Jesus on the scene. Because, you know, the Old Testament, like First Kings are the books written before the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And those books tell us a lot about who the Christ would have to be, especially 
his lineage. He'd be a human being, not a an angel or a, an alien. He'd be a male, not a female. He'd be a Semite, a Jewish person through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of one particular tribe, one particular family, David slash Solomon, born of a virgin, which really narrows it down, supernatural conceptions, virgin birth. And then we see the New Testament starts with a genealogy, and I know everybody fast-forwards to the genealogy, but that's Matthew showing you that based on those promises to Abraham, that in fact that Jesus is in his physicality a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, and he fits the bill. And then the Lord Jesus uh, uh, you know, cites Old Testament as not just relevant but inspired and indispensable. Okay, worldly achievements, fame, and wealth. Here's a nice graphic on the wealth of Solomon. But here's the problem with Solomon's wealth. He's making over a billion dollars a year. His personal personal fortune is a thousand million. Back in Deuteronomy, we're told as Moses anticipated this monarchy that would sometimes come, he talked about some things the kings of the nation should do and that the kings shouldn't do. And Deborah, uh, on the don't list is, number one, the kings of Israel should not multiply wives for themselves. But we're going to find out, we already know, He's got 700 wives and 300 concubines. And we're going to emphasize that next week. But it also says, nor should he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. Um, You know, appropriate respect and appropriate salary, of course. Uh, Mega exaggerated uh, wealth, no. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be the pastor of nation Israel, the political pastor of Israel for the money. You shouldn't do it for the money. It's not about the money. It's a privilege to be able to do it. Uh, rich and, uh, James may become rich and famous. I don't think I'm going to become rich or famous. And like I like to say, when I went in the ministry over 30 years ago, I had no desire to become rich or famous, so it's all working out real real well so far. But uh, uh, with, honestly, uh, with no envy in my heart, I just don't like it. I don't care how big a guy's church is. I don't think these guys ought to be making $15 million for signing a deal that says, I'll let somebody else write a book for me, okay? Which is what America's favorite preacher, according to People Magazine, which is not a very good theological journal, uh, reported uh, several years ago about his second book. So he's had three books he hasn't written. But to me, you know, this is just unseemly. And we wonder why unbelievers... See, the problem with that is unbelievers hear that and then they look at me and James through that lens. Now, we're not getting rich and famous, okay? The church is very generous with us. but uh, And, you know, I could have written that book, any of those three books. It would have been a better book, and they could have paid me just $5 million, and I would have written it myself, you know? But they didn't ask me, you know? So I'm never going to be in that position. But if you bump into a skeptic at work that thinks, you know, a lot of these preachers get paid too much, uh, just say, you know, my own preacher said that recently himself, and I'm not, I don't resent it per se, but I think it's not good at a lot of different levels, and it hurts our testimony and the culture, in my opinion. Okay, let's wind this down and conclude. We're looking at the spectacular but sad successes of Solomon. He's got all this fame and all this wealth and all these achievements, but let's see what he says about all that a little later himself. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you have Solomon at the end of his life looking back at some of the things he did wrong. And he says this, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And you're thinking about the 700 wives and the 300 concubines. That was part of it for sure. 
Uh, but it also included, my heart found pleasure in all my works, his public works, building all these things and getting apes and peacocks and starting a zoo and examining all this stuff. He got pleasure from accomplishing things, building things. But then when it gets completed, I considered all that I had done, and behold, all of it was vanity. It didn't really satisfy me. It didn't really fill uh, and, and give me a, any kind of lasting fulfillment. Temporarily, yeah. Long-term, no. It was just a striving after wind. And, uh, you know, he built the temple. He built his palace. He built the wall, extended the city, made it twice as large. Built the Milo. Built these uh, storage cities. Uh, uh, if you go to Megiddo, uh, we've never had enough time because you only spend like an hour there. But if you had more time, you could go down to where he actually built this stable system that holds like 25,000 horses. I think he dug that up in Israel. But he says, I, I did all that and I kind of enjoyed the challenge of doing it on time and under budget. But when it was done, uh, I had to have something else. It was like a drug. It's just never good enough. And I would say even those of us who love the Lord sometimes forget this. And you know, if we think... Uh, that our highest desire in life is to have X. It, it can be good stuff. Happy marriage. Uh, kids that respect me. You know, if you don't have kids that respect you, that's tragic, man. Especially if you did the best you could. I, my heart bleeds for you. Fortunately, mine do, but that's just the grace of God. Because there are some great parents out there and the kids just don't get it. And they spit in your face and they hate your guts and it ain't your fault and that's gotta hurt double, triple. Uh, I guess I'm not strong enough to deal with that. I've got other issues. Uh, that I have to deal with, but I don't have that one. But if, if that's your goal, I always said, you know, when James Dobson started the ministry Focus on the Family, I said, hey, I'm always going to focus on my family, but my core focus has got to be on Jesus, not my family. I can't worship even my family. I can't even worship this pulpit, this ministry. I can't worship anything other than the creator, savior, consummator of history, or I'm going to be messed up. So if our goal, even if it's religiously, we want to be the best Song leader, we're the best elder, we want to be the best whatever in the church or whatever. If that's our number one goal, that's at the center of our heart, uh, only two things will happen. We'll either not get what we want. We won't get that promotion, won't become CEO, won't become America's favorite preacher, whatever we want to be, you know. Uh, even if we can justify it for good, because I'll help people if I get to be real rich and famous. Uh, you won't get what you want. You won't get what you've centered your life on for a year or ten or fifty and so you're miserable because you didn't get what you want. You think that's why you're miserable. And usually those people get mad at God, too, just because he didn't let them get what they wanted. You know, So that's not a good place to be. That's one way you can end up. The other main way you can end up is get what you wanted. And Solomon got everything he wanted. I mean, even the Queen of Sheba came and visited him. When's the last time Queen of Sheba visited you? She ain't coming, Steve. Just forget it. You know? And yet, as Ecclesiastes says... Hey, I, I didn't keep myself from any pleasure. I built everything I wanted to build. I even built a navy. I built a navy for Israel with a bunch of Jews and ships. You understand this thing? And it was all vanity. Even after we got it, we had the best navy in the world on paper. But uh, it was, wasn't what I really needed, you know? So you end up unfulfilled anyway. And that's where Solomon was. I think a better approach is center on the Lord. But hey, Anthony, you don't want to be so... Heavenly minded, you know earthly good. Center on the Lord and then achieve. Then focus on your family too. Then, you know, Trev, your, your number one goal should be be the best husband and father you can be. Your number one discipleship job is discipling your kids. 
You know, I, I definitely believe that. And some of them won't take. Some of them don't care. Some of them won't believe. Some of them won't listen. Some of them will believe for a while and change their mind. They'll go to college and somebody will say, hey, if God can do anything, can he make a rock so big he himself can't lift it? Oh, my gosh. i got to say, what's the answer to that? Can God make a rock so big he himself can't lift it? The answer is no. He can't make a rock so big he himself can't lift it. What's the problem with that question? All the Sunday school teachers in an attempt to oversimplify who God is say, God can do anything. Hey, Bible says God can do anything. He can't do anything. He can't lie. He can't die. He can't stop being God. He can't build a rock bigger than he is. He can't, there's a lot of stuff he can't do. He can't sin, right? When we say God is omnipotent, we mean there's no limit to his power. We don't, say so if we settle for sloppy definitions, Bible McNuggets are going to hurt you long term because you're going to have a false expectation about reality and then you get mad at God when your expectation doesn't line up with reality. But it's your fault. It's not God's fault. I think a better way to live, and uh, the Lord's Supper can help us to do that, is center on the Lord and then seek to achieve as uh, Dr. D. has got a Ph.D., he's a world-class engineer, and he's done a lot of great things. I mean, Lloyd uh, Davis has like 47 patents, you know. Uh, he doesn't like to brag, but, I mean, we've got a lot of achievers in here. But I don't think many of us make those things the center of our lives. If you've got the, the, our Savior in the center of our pie chart, then of course we should try to achieve and do the best we can in every area. But when you do that, you can be content in the ups and downs and the victories and the defeats. And you actually look in the mirror and respect yourself. I want that's worth for you. So having it all isn't enough because having it all isn't all there is. What's the big problem with that premise? He who dies for the most toys live, lifestyles rich and famous. Now the problem is, your toy, they never, hearse, hearses never pull, you know, U-Hauls full of t- stuff with them, do they? He who dies with the most toys still dies. That's the problem. And that's why the gospel will never uh, go out of uh, vogue because of the universal reality of sin. We got it and death. It's coming. But the Bible says, he who knew no sin, he who committed no sin, was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him because Christ died to pay our sin debt for us before God. He did the work for us, and he rose again to validate that. Uh, we can receive him through faith and have the gift of eternal life. For by grace, and that means unmerited favor, for by grace are you saved through faith in Jesus, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God not of works, so there's nothing for us to brag about. Salvation is not something we do for God. It's something Christ has done for us, and we receive it in simple faith. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. Yeah, my mom and my dad and my coach and my pastor were wacky, and they probably made it worse than it should have been, but I'm a sinner. I've broken your rules. I've spit in your face. It's my fault, and I can't fix it. But I believe you can because I believe you are the God-man Savior who died to pay for my sins rose again. And I want you to save me. That's saving faith. Active, receptive trust. Right, Tom? A little child can do that. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, those who believe on his name. So this is our invitation. If you've never trusted Christ today, you can do that right where you sit. If you've done that, beware uh, the uh, the fable that now God's your spiritual success coach and you're in your uh, spiritual success consultant, and he works for you to make sure you get everything you want. He's your guarantor of earthly comfort. You know, actually, in the plan he's got, which is the only one that actually 
counts. He sees our character is more important than our circumstances. And we tend to get it the other way around. So I'll end with this. We've been made for something bigger than the biggest business deal, the biggest construction project, the happiest marriage, the best relationship with your kids you could imagine on this world. Uh, we've been made for someone, the Savior, and somewhere, heaven, that's out of this world. Assuming that anyone, lowercase a, or anything on earth can ultimately satisfy us is not just incorrect. It's a dangerous spiritual dead end. And we're going to see where that kind of thinking ends up in Solomon's life, uh, Lord willing, next week in chapter 11. Okay? Have a word of prayer. Father, as we approach the Lord's Supper now, and as we reflect on this message, I pray that this would not just be information. It would be transforming truth for everyone, including myself. And that we would uh, re-energize and refocus on centering our lives on the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, and then pursue excellence in everything we do, but not to fulfill us or to glorify us, uh, but to please and to glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.